All right. Hey, good morning. Good morning, New Life. Wherever you are joining us today, we're so glad that you did show up today. I want to say a great big hello to everyone who is worshiping with us online, live, or maybe you're watching this later in the week or the month on our archive page. Hey, thanks for taking the time to worship with us through the message today. I want to thank everybody in North Platte for joining us. We love you guys and everybody in the venue. Uh, Lots of places to connect with God through New Life Church and the ministry here. So we love everybody who's a part of our congregation. And hey, I'm here in the Kearney campus. I love you guys too. You look good. Turn to your neighbor and just tell them, hey, you look good. Yeah, you guys do look good. And I trust that you look good watching online today. Hey, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here on staff today. Just a humbling honor to be able to share uh, what God has laid on my heart as we begin a brand new teaching series entitled Guardrails. Guardrails. This is, this is going to be an interesting uh, teaching series, and so, and so just buckle up, all right? It's going to be good. Uh, if you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 23. We're going to get there in just a moment, but you can, put, you can hold your place. When I was a child, my my grandparents, they led a church in Montana, and I remember, uh, I remember family vacations. It seemed like all of our vacations were to one of our relatives' houses or to, you know, to one of our grandparents' houses, and so we would travel often to Montana to visit my grandparents, and one of the greatest memories I had as a child, I don't know, 10, 10 years old or so, is we went to Glacier National Park, beautiful place if you've ever been there. You understand that just the beauty, the majesty of the, the lakes and the, the mountains and the glaciers, obviously. And we took this journey one day with my grandparents, with my family. We had five children in the family growing up. Later on, we had, my parents had two more kids uh, that they adopted. But we just had the five, the seven, plus my grandparents all in a conversion van. And we drove uh, the road to the sun. Or, or I think that's the name of it, The Road to the Sun. If you've ever been on that, it's unbelievable. I have a picture, show you just a little bit. Um, this is The Road to the Sun, and this is, here's a guardrail. This is, this is an old guardrail. Uh, but there's a 50-mile, two-lane road, and most of it looks like this, all right? Now, this was back in the 80s. Maybe the road is a little better condition nowadays, but I gotta tell you, it, it was pretty exciting and pretty scary at the same time. And there was a place... Uh, a few places where we would pull over and take pictures. And we walked up, me and my brothers, we walked up to one of these guardrails just to freak our mom out. How many understand what I'm talking about? Just to make mom scream, just to see how loud. And it was actually probably a pretty stupid move because literally there's a cliff on the other side and we could have died. But we wanted to pretend that we were jumping over. And, and so the guardrails on that road were extremely, extremely important. Uh, at the minimum... When you see a guardrail on a road, at the minimum it says a warning, right? It says danger is on the other side. If you bust through this guardrail, if this guardrail wasn't here, there's something very dangerous on the other side. That's at the minimum. At the other extreme, a guardrail serves a very practical purpose. If we veer off the path, it's going to save us, hopefully if its integrity stands, save us from dropping off the cliff or off the ravine or off the ditch or going into oncoming traffic. So at the very least, it says, hey, don't go here. And then if we do veer off the path, it catches us. Um, If you think about the roads that we have, at least in the U.S. or at least in Nebraska, most of them 
Most of the mileage on the interstate, for example, you don't see guardrails. You see them, again, at, at bridges. You see them. There's definitely a guardrail that keeps you from oncoming traffic. But most of the, the road doesn't have a guardrail until you get to somewhere dangerous. It may have a rumble strip. How many love those? You just do that to wake, to wake. I do that to wake my wife up a little bit. You know, if we're going on a road trip, she falls asleep. Just do that to make her think I fell asleep. I know. That's just crazy. It's, nothing's changed since I was 10. Uh, but you may have those rumble strips. You may have the striping to tell you, hey, stay in the lane. Uh, but most of the road doesn't have the guardrail. The guardrail is an extreme sign to say, hey, this is a bad place. Be careful. Don't go here. Extreme dangers on the other side. So thinking in terms of the guardrails uh, in the natural and the practical for a road system, the title of our series we entitled guardrails as a metaphor, all right? And I think most of us parents understand we've probably already transitioned to where we're going in this series. If you're a parent, you understand when you're raising your children at home the idea of guardrails, right? You put up, you set up guardrails for their life. In fact, we as parents are the guardrails for our children. And if you're a Christ-centered parent, Your ultimate goal is to transfer their dependence upon you, their guardrail, to where their dependence rests just on God, solely on the Lord. And so as parents, we need the Holy Spirit to speak to us and show us his guardrails to show us the path that we need to stay on so that we can transfer the truth to our kids. So so we get that idea of the guardrail. So here's where we're going with the series. It's going to take me a little while to get to Matthew 23, but let me just tell you and set up the next few weeks uh, of this series. In, in some of the most lively, tension-filled moments in Scripture when Jesus was walking the earth and in his public ministry, he had these tense moments. He was dealing with a group of people or a couple of groups of people Uh, called the scribes and then the Pharisees. Now, the scribes, just so you understand, in ancient Israel, the scribes were men who uh, were entrusted to translate or to, to transcribe the Old Testament, the Old Testament law that they had at that point. And they would, so they would transcribe it, they would write commentaries on it, they were known as the teachers of the law. In fact, your version translation in Matthew 23, it may even say teachers of the law and Pharisees instead of scribes, but that's who we're talking about. Now, not only did they, their whole life was about the Bible and transcribing it and teaching it and writing about it, but they were so consumed with it and uh, the human nature began to take over, as it often does, and they went way beyond God's word, and they would add man-made traditions, even elevating some of the traditions they came up with above the law of God. Now, many of these scribes or these teachers of the law were a part of a sect of Judaism called the Pharisees. So you have the scribes and you have the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees, again, were Jews. They were a part of Judaism. The best way I can describe it is kind of like a Christian denomination, all right? So I'm not going to give that a name, but just, just to illustrate, you have, you have Baptists, you have Pentecostal, right? You have Methodists, and so you have the Pharisees. Now, the scribes, most of them were a part of the sect of Judaism called the Pharisees. So their job was to translate scripture. They were theologians, and they belonged to the church of the Pharisees. Not every Pharisee was a scribe or a teacher of the law, but most of the scribes were Pharisees. 
Now, the Pharisees, they were an extreme group. They were the most vocal in the first century. They were, again, extremists. They, they loved the law of God, and they loved following the law, figuring out how to follow the law. But they liked to obey very limited parts, their favorite parts of God's law, and then all their traditions that they added to it that they got from the scribes, right? So they were just passionate about about living out what the scribes or the teachers of the law said. Now, in Matthew 22, I just want to, again, set the context for where we're going in this series. In Matthew 22, there's another sect or denomination, if you want to look at it that way, of Jews that came to Jesus. They're known as the Sadducees. They're Sadducees. And I learned it as a kid. They were sad, you see, because they did not believe that when you died, you would be raised back to life. They didn't believe in the resurrection. So they were sad, you see. Right? You get that? You're going to remember that. And so they come to Jesus and they're asking him this question because, again, they don't believe in the resurrection. And Jesus answers them. And in his answer, he highlights their ignorance of the word of God. And they were astonished. He just basically shut them down. In fact, your translation of the Bible that has sometimes a subtitle or a section header may say, Jesus silences the Sadducees. That's, in fact, what he did. So he silences them, shuts them down. Now, the Pharisees, this other sect, they hear about it. And now the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they disagreed on a lot of things. And so they come to Jesus. They hear, oh, Jesus silenced them. They show up. They have a question to ask him. Maybe they're thinking if Jesus is against them, maybe he's for us or maybe we can get him on our side. And they ask him a question to test him. What is the greatest commandment? See, their whole world was about the commandments and what, what is the most important thing and how do you follow the law of God? They are trying to test him. Jesus answers them. You can read it in Matthew 22. He shuts them down. He silences them. In fact, it says that after this, after this day, which Matthew 23 is a part of this moment, that no one dare ask Jesus any more questions. I mean, they just, he just shut them down. He humbled them. So that is the setting. The scribes and the Pharisees have come. They've showed up after they heard what Jesus had said to the Sadducees. Jesus shuts them down, and it's in this environment, there's disciples that are present, there's a crowd, and then you have these Pharisees that are present. Now, Matthew, or excuse me, yeah, Matthew chapter 23, that's where we're hanging out in this series. I'm not going to focus a lot on verse 1 through 12, but it's very important just to say this. In verse 1 through 12, the beginning, Jesus is speaking mostly directly to his disciples. And he is speaking about the scribes and Pharisees. So he's going to say to them, hey guys, here's, here's what these guys are like. And then where we're going in the series, Jesus is speaking directly to the Pharisees, very confrontational words. So in 1 through 12, all to the disciples, here's what he says in verse 5. He's speaking about the Pharisees and the scribes. He says, everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside. Can you imagine that? All right. And, And they wear robes with extra long tassels. And they love to sit at the head table at banquets and in the seats of honor in the synagogue, and then watch this, it keeps going. They love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi or to be called teacher. They love that position of spiritual status. That is the way that Jesus frames up and characterizes the Pharisees as he's talking to his disciples. He says, hey, these guys that I just dealt with, 
They love to elevate themselves. They love to look good. You know, human nature has not changed, has it? We love posturing. I mean, it's a part of our nature. Sometimes we even do it in church today where we come so that people, and we we look a certain way, we act a certain way, and, and and there's nothing wrong with acting a certain way or looking a certain way. But when our motivation is that other people might see us, nothing much has changed, has it? Now, Jesus, it's important to get this. He was very public with his accusations and his confrontation of the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious This wasn't a private conversation where he pulled them aside and said, hey, I think we need to have a meeting, right? We need to have a a talk in private about the issues that I'm seeing with you. No, it's it's a very public thing that's going on right here. And I believe it's so that we can listen in, so the disciples at that time could listen in to the characterizations and the contrast Jesus was making about what it means to be in the kingdom of God and on the other side of the guardrails outside of the kingdom of God. But as we hear, here's a very, this is, I believe, crucial. As we listen to Jesus' characterization of the scribes and Pharisees, these religious people, we need to be careful not to go to the extreme, not to see the radicalness of their behavior and to categorize them as, you know, I'm, at least I'm not that bad, you know? Well, I'm better than them. And to look at them, though, th- though this is a radical situation, that is, this is an extreme thing, but if we go there, we may miss, we may miss a species of pride and arrogance that might be present in our own life. So as we look at it, let's, let's allow the Holy Spirit to say, okay, here's an extreme example. Here's the extreme if you bust through the guardrail. But God, is there something in me? Is there a subtleness that's, that's leaning towards that? So I just want to encourage us, especially those of you who've been serving Jesus for a long time, maybe you've been in church for a long time, the temptation to be a Pharisee is a very real thing. And so this is in the Bible so that we could take warning. Let it be a guardrail that stands to us to say, hey, danger is on the other side if you, if you go here. Now, Jesus, he's speaking to the disciples, and then he, he kind of wraps it all up with this transitional statement before he talks to the Pharisees directly. And he says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. I think that really summarizes verses 1 through 12. When I allow people or when I desire for people to see Chris Puccini rather than to see the Jesus through me, that is in definition exalting myself, right? And Jesus says this, if you do that, you will be humbled. And that's what's going on here in a verbal setting. In in chapter 22, it says once again that no one No one dared ask him any more questions. They were astonished. They were silence. Have you ever been humbled like that in a conversation? And I'm not talking about where somebody is just a better arguer than you. You know what I mean? Where you have a disagreement. And have you ever argued with somebody who's just a pro arguer? Don't, Don't nudge your spouse or anything right now if you're sitting by them. But somebody who is, they're wrong, but they're just really good at arguing. They, they just get you, your thoughts all messed up, or they're just mean and they shut you down. I'm not talking where you just lose an argument, but 
but where the Lord or a parent or somebody puts you in your place to where you have to acknowledge, you know what, I'm wrong and you're right. And it's humbling, right? Well, that's what's going on here. And let me say this. I think it's one thing to be humbled here. It's one thing to be humbled in the natural and in this life. But I believe Jesus' statement, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted, carries eternal implications. That if we get low, God will lift us up. And he's speaking not just about a moment of, of verbal affirmation or confrontation. Understand Jesus' heart. He is, he was in the scripture, and he is still passionate about lost people and inviting them into a relationship with him, inviting them onto the path, inviting them onto the road with him. And the on-ramp, his on-ramp is his grace. And he has set his church on a mission to open the door that everyone would see him for who he is and receive mercy and grace and on-ramp into the kingdom of God. But get this, write this down if you're taking notes. Uh, When we place him on center stage and take the low place, he lifts us up. That is so key. When we put him at the center of our life, when we put him at the center of our worship gatherings and we get low, you know what he does? He lifts us up. And it's not he exalts us so that now everybody can see us. It's not a pathway to fame. But what he does is he lifts us up to the proper place relationally with him where we acknowledge that he is king so that everybody could see that he, in fact, is king in our life. And then when we do that, here's the great thing. We can say, like the Apostle Paul said, follow me as I follow the example of Christ. We only have the authority and the position to say that when we get low and we let him be exalted in our life. We have the authority and we have the position to say, as I follow Christ, follow me in that way. Now the next few weeks we're going to dissect Matthew 23. And we're going to look at this encounter and in it we're going to see this common theme Some of you have heard these statements before, but let me just set it up this way. Because of Jesus' passion for his mission and for the kingdom of God, for lost people to come into the kingdom of God, he continued to say to the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious who were all about being seen by everybody as as somebody spiritual, he says this phrase, and here it is, it's woe to you. Woe to you. That's going to be a common phrase that we come back to throughout this series. Now, woe to you, or even the word woe is not something we use very often, if at all, in in our culture today. And so it's important to understand what does woe mean. Now, woe could mean one or two things. Woe can carry with it the feeling of deep emotional grief. And so there's this woundedness to it. But it also could mean... A word of judgment, all right? So context is everything. So when you see, as we go along, when you see how Jesus confronts the scribes and Pharisees and how he launches in to just addressing their issue, I believe, in my view, it is a strong word of judgment when he says, woe to you. But also if you go to the very end of Matthew 23 and you read that last section, you see the wounded love of Jesus when he says, and he's looking at Jerusalem, he says, man, how... Jerusalem, how I wanted to gather you close together like a close family, and yet you rejected me. And you see that woundedness in Jesus. So as you look at this 
Woe to you. I believe it carries to the Pharisees a, a word of judgment, but it's laced with a broken heart and a heart to see people come into the kingdom of God. Now, here's, here's the big idea for the message, right? If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Here is the big idea. When you put the spotlight on self, you shut the door of God's kingdom in the face of people. We're going to see that as he goes and he deals with the Pharisees. But when you humble yourself so others can see Christ, you open the on-ramps to God's kingdom. When you get low and you humble yourself, we as a church together corporately can open the door to the on-ramps for people to come into the kingdom of God. Are you with me today? Come on, turn to your neighbor if you have a neighbor and say, this is the best message I've heard all morning, all right? Come on now. <laughs> As some of you watched some pastor early this morning, and you can't honestly say that statement, I had, uh, I had one of my former youth group students come here today for the first time. He said, oh, are you preaching? I said, yeah, I'm preaching. And he said, well, there's, good thing there's Wi-Fi or something like that, but uh, anyway, so back to the message and why you came today. The woe to you statements. They're going to give us some guardrails for our spiritual journey. As we go along in this series, the woe to you statements, we're going to derive from them some guardrails. So here's the connection. As we understand the characterization Jesus makes of the Pharisees and the scribes, we're going to look at that and say, okay, what is the guardrail? What is the description of the other side of the guardrail? It's not, that's where I don't want to go. And where is it that I want to be? Because as we look at the guardrail and what Jesus is saying, it's going to give us an illumination. It's going to illuminate what does his path look like versus, you know, the ditch. What is the right way versus the wrong way? What is the narrow way versus the, 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 the broad way, right? So pay attention today, and I believe God's going to shine his light upon what it looks like to be on the path. Let me put it this way. Those of you who have kids or have had kids or maybe you work with kids, do you teach a child not to touch a flame by explaining how amazing life is um, by not touching a flame? Like how awesome it is not to be burned, right? I mean, you might try that type of positive reinforcement. Like haven't all your life, Johnny, you've not been, well, they have no clue what being burned is all about. And so, no, you try to to, because there's danger there, you tried to warn them about the burn. Don't do this. It's a stern warning. It's, it's sharp. It's like, no, don't go there because this is going to be bad, right? That's what you do. Well, the guardrail serves that purpose. It's a strong warning. Don't go here. On the other side is something that you don't want to live. And it's important that God speaks to us very Straight and very honest that way. Why? Because we can be blinded. Just like a child can be ignorant of what a flame will do. We can be blinded. We can become ignorant to what the other side of the guardrail will do to our life. And we can also become deceived. We can sit in the church and become deceived. Thinking that there is another way aside from God's grace alone. And so we need God to speak to us. God's kindness, the Bible says, leads to repentance, but guess what? His kindness is also his truth and sometimes his discipline and his warnings. That's his kindness. So let's read this in Matthew 23, and for the sake of getting emotionally connected, can we all just pretend that we are scribes and Pharisees, all right? So that's, we're no longer New Life Church, we are first Pharisaical church of the scribes, all right? We're scribes and Pharisees. Look what Jesus says. But woe to you, scribes 
and Pharisees, hypocrites, exclamation point. Now, how do you feel as a scribe and Pharisee, right? This is confrontational. It's strong language. Eight times in Matthew 23, Jesus highlights their hypocrisy. Well, we all know what a a hypocrite is, right? Everybody knows what that is? It's, It's an actor. It's someone who says one thing and is actually another thing, who puts on a show or puts on a pretense to be one thing, but really, in reality, in their heart and in their behavior, when no one else is around or only certain people around, they act a completely different way. It would be as if I decided to start a brand new company, a health and nutrition company, about my incredible vegan diet, right? That would be me being a hypocrite as I go home and eat Nebraska you know, corn-fed beef, right? That's going to happen today after church. Uh, that would be a hypocrite, but I'm telling the world, hey, right? That, that is being a hypocrite. Now, their entire life looked as if it orbited around God's word and God's ways, but Jesus saw the heart of the matter, and when their, their heart was exposed and their behavior painted a, a clearly another picture. Here's what it looks like to live on the other side of the guardrail, Matthew 23, the next part of verse 13. For you, again, speaking to the scribes and Pharisees, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. This is strong. This is heavy. This is painting the picture of what it means to live in the ditch. Get this, the only way that we as followers of Christ can partner with God to step in, is to step into the mission uh, for every believer and for his church. The only way that we can do that is to open the door so that other people can see him and experience him. That's it. That's the only way that we can live in our purpose. It's called bringing glory to God. We talked about it in our, in our uh, message on Father's Day, that we are to glorify God with our life. Another word that we use is this word magnify. We need to magnify God. Well, let me just bring that term into, into the 20th century, into reality. What is that? Or 21st century, aren't we? Uh, to, what does that mean? Well, when you think of the word to ma- magnify or to magnify something, what do you magnify? If there's something that's really, really small, you, you get a magnifying glass or you get a microscope and you magnify something small that you can bring it into view and see, uh, see that, that object. But our God is not somebody who's really small that we need to have some type of equipment to, to make that we might see him. He's actually very big. But sometimes for some people, God is, is, is hard to see. It's like a, it's like a planet or a sun that's, that's light years away. And you've seen some of, these, some of these stars make earth look like a speck in comparison, right? But they're, they're very difficult to see. They're very enormous and giant, but they're difficult to see because our view is obscured and it's far away. And so our job as followers of Christ is to magnify like a telescope would and bring Jesus into view of the people around us. That is our goal. That is our mission, that they might see him and not just see not just see us. The Pharisees and the scribes, they serve, they serve as this type of guardrail. Get low, humble yourself so that others can see God, so others can see him. And when we do that, we find joy, we find peace, we find purpose. And get this, when we go low and we lift him up, we open the door 
that others can see him, and we open the on-ramps to the kingdom of God that others might enter into the kingdom of God. Look how Matthew 7 characterizes our options, the options we have about this path. It says this, you can enter God's kingdom only, say only, only. Here's the only way, only through the narrow gate. That is, the gate is Jesus. The highway to hell is broad, and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult, and only a few ever find it. You know, we have these options. We can take the broad way, or we could take the narrow road that's more difficult because, you know, it's, there's, it's, it's hard to find. It's, it's difficult to find. Now, now, we understand that when we use a metaphor uh, with the Word of God, uh, eventually a metaphor breaks down. But, but hang on with me on this metaphor, okay? If you think about the United States, the total, the total land area of the United States is 2.9, over 2.9 million square miles. That's, that's massive. 2.9 million square miles. But if you would add up all of the roads, the interstates, the highways, the gravel roads, even the parking lot spaces, right, it would be less than 1% of all of the land area of the United States, the lower 48. The point is this. There's a lot of different ways that you could travel, but there is one road, there is one path. If you want to take, um, if you want to get to Omaha from Kearney or North Platte, you're probably going to take Interstate 80 because it's the, the quickest, right? You don't have to. You could take other highways. You could even, if you wanted to get crazy, you could even decide, I'm going to go over to west to Denver, and I'm going to cut down to, you know, I'm going to go down to New Mexico, and you can do a roundabout way and eventually get there. But you're probably going to take the quick way, the fast way, the easy way. Now, when you're on Interstate 80, you could actually, if you wanted to, until the police caught up with you, you could get off the road and you could drive through the cornfields and through the rivers and through the ditches and through the ravines, depending on your vehicle. And you're probably going to have trouble. You may not ever get there, but there's other ways that you could navigate in this world uh, to get there. That, that's kind of the metaphor of the kingdom of God. There is one way that God has called us to live, right? But there's many choices that we have out there. God's guardrails needs to serve serve as a reminder to us. There is a way. There is a path. The other side is danger. The other side, in fact, is not a way. If you're on the other side, you're not in the kingdom of God. Stay on the path. Here's the point. Being in the kingdom of God, write this down. Being in the kingdom of God is being on his path. It's being on his path. And Jesus' issue with the scribes and Pharisees was their hypocrisy, their blindness, and them shutting people out of the kingdom of God. Is not allowing them to enter through the narrow gate, through the way of grace and truth. It's not as wide. God's path is not as wide. It may not even be to you and look to you as glamorous as what's on the other side of the guardrails, but it's the only way. It's the only way to eternal life. See, God loves us so much that he made the path. God loves us so much that he made, he set up guardrails. And in this interaction between the scribes and the Pharisees, he is giving us some very clear guardrails. If you exalt yourself, you will be humbled. But if you humble yourself, you will be exalted. Now, I believe Jesus' heart 
was broken because of the Pharisees' choice not to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus came to seek and save all that were lost. That includes these guys. I mean, they were, they were lost. They were consumed with the, the temptation of pride and the fame that their culture was giving them. The hook in their throat was the, the blind pride, the blindedness to the pride of, of their own self-righteousness, which the Bible says of our own self-righteousness, it's like filthy rags. It doesn't compare. It doesn't work. And Jesus came to seek and save them too. He came to seek and save all who are lost. Yet his heart broke also for those that the scribes and the Pharisees were shutting out of the kingdom of God. And let me just say this. These guys were in positions of influence. They had the ability to point people to God, but instead they were pointing people to themselves. And while Jesus is full of compassion, and while Jesus is full of grace, and I believe that he is, he is pleading with the scribes and Pharisees of this day, please would you turn, turn around. While he's full of that compassion, he will not share his throne with you. And he will not tolerate self-righteousness that shuts other people out of his kingdom. He won't. Everyone who exalts himself will, will be humbled. The guardrail says this. Write this down. The guardrail says today, on the other side of the rail is woe to you. Woe to you. That, that's the, don't get burned, you're going to get burned if you go on the other side of that. But the guardrail also infers that there is a better way, that there is indeed a path that God has designed. There is a way that you need to go. There's a better way. Whoever humbles himself, it says, will be exalted. Now, the idea is not to be exalted again so that everybody can see me. What does it mean to be exalted? There is nothing better than having God lift you up. There's nothing better than having God lift you up. It, it's, the, it's the relational sweet spot with him. It's being in right relationship where he is king, you are not, you're his kid, he is, he is the father, right? And he is the one that people see. Not only that, not only is it good to be in sync relationally with God, but as we bring him into view, as we get low, we open the door for others to come in. I believe new life, the heart of new life, is to continue to be this type of church where we invite other people to step into a relationship with Jesus Christ, where we are not shutting down the on-ramps, feeling like that we are the guards to the kingdom by exalting ourselves, but where we get low so that other people can see him. And so here's the questions that I want you to just to ponder. If you're, God is speaking to your heart. Maybe sometimes it's good for me just to close my eyes and, and to think about the questions that are like this. Am I opening the doors so that others can see the beauty of Christ? Am I opening the gate so that others can on-ramp into the journey? Or am I adding a bit of me to the story? Am I adding a little bit of my preference to the good news, which is grace freely given, undeserved favor of God? Am I adding 
a bit of me to the gospel, the good news of God's grace? Am I rewriting what it looks like to be a follower of Christ? Am I rewriting what it looks like to on-ramp or to surrender to Christ? Because the end of that road is going to be bad. It's going to humble me. It's going to hurt. Have I crushed through the guardrail? And Today, I, I, I'm being humbled by God's word. Because, man, I've just crashed right through. I'm driving out in the cornfields on my own. Looking for people that might be trying to look for the, the, the path and shutting them out. If that's you, would you stop? Would you turn around? Would you repent? Would you humble yourself before a holy God and say, God, there's nothing that I can do. It's all about you. Forgive me. Forgive me. When we do that, when we get low, when we get on the path, it's the place of authentic. Hear me because I'm going to use kind of a churchy word. It's the place of authentic righteousness. Authentic righteousness. Do you know that you cannot perform to get righteousness, to earn righteousness? There's nothing that you can do to have God's righteousness. The biblical doctrine is his righteousness is imputed on you. God takes his righteousness, and because of his grace And because we have faith in what he has done, he takes his righteousness and he puts it on us. The way of God's kingdom, the path is authentic righteousness. It's real peace and it's joy in the Holy Spirit. It's not, I got to stand guard over the kingdom of God. It's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit where we are excited to see people step into a relationship with Jesus Christ and begin a journey of discipleship, of knowing him and making him known. Those are the questions today, and so I'm going to ask you today at all of our locations to bow your heads and close your eyes as you stand with me. And I pray. Now, God, as I've posed the questions Will you answer them? Will you answer them? Will you answer them, God? Because I, I am tempted. I'm tempted to pet, put my best foot forward. I'm tempted to exaggerate my condition. I'm tempted to paint a good picture. So I need you to show me reality Answer those questions. Am I opening the door? Am I opening the gate? Am I taking the low place that you might be exalted? Oh God, am I through? Maybe, maybe it began in a, in a sincere passion for you, but it has, it, has my own works taken over? Have I become prideful? Have I become arrogant? my own brand of righteousness and in that of exalting myself I, I've just been become blinded that I've shut the door I've shut the kingdom of God the door to the kingdom in the face of people God forgive me I pray that I humble myself today I want to humble myself and turn around and so right now Lord at all of our locations I pray that you would do what only you can do is answer that question 
And I pray for my friends that they would respond in a way that there would be a breakthrough. And I pray for my friends that they're, they're journeying down that path and they're inviting people in and they're, they're in sync. God, guard us from the pride. Guard us from, if I can say, the spirit of the Pharisee. May we not be tripped up. In Jesus' name, amen.